Did you know Rob Farrell's Leading Saints podcast interview has over 100,000 downloads? Yeah, it seemed everyone loved it. After that interview, we actually invited Rob Farrell to a Leading Saints live event and told him he could take as much time as he wanted. Well, he ended up teaching for four plus hours, and don't worry, we recorded it. It's all part of the Leading Saints Core Leader Library, and we want you to watch it at no cost. Simply go to leadingsaints.org 14, and you can gain access to not only Rob Farrell's four-hour presentation, but also to 100-plus hours of all other leadership-related content that we have in the Core Leader Library. You're going to love it. So simply visit leadingsaints.org 14 and get started. Hey, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Now, for many of you that are brand new uh, to Leading Saints, it's important that you know that Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization, 501c3, dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation. We get so much positive feedback on the podcast, our virtual conferences, the articles on our website. You definitely got to check it out at leadingsaints.org. And on their homepage at LeadingSaints.org, you can actually find the top six most downloaded episodes to the podcast. So if you're new, like the content, want to jump in to some of our most popular episodes, head there after you listen to this episode. Today, I'm in the home of Elder Lynn G. Robbins. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you, and good to have you here. Yeah, we've uh, been emailing and, and setting this up, and I've been looking forward to uh, sitting down with you and learning more and exploring some of your, your ministry. I think we, you probably don't remember, but you came to the California Sacramento Mission in 2001 or two, and uh, I was there. doing. You did a mission tour, and you taught us some great things. Was your president President Hansen? It was, yeah. yeah. And well, I remember very well because at that time, the Sacramento Mission was the highest baptizing mission in the United States. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, you had a, a very unique approach to missionary work, which was family history That's right. yep. based. Mm -hmm. And your pass-along cards and your finding method yeah. was to ask individuals or families if they would like their four generations. Yeah. It was, hard. It was an invitation hard to turn down, but it was a very fascinating approach to missionary work. Yeah, we called it, tell me about your family cards. And yeah. people would fill out their grandparents and their parents and whatnot. Then we'd help them do their family history and then transition. It was a lot of fun. So, and I remember, well, let's go back. Just give us some of your early background. Where were you born and raised in the church? And So I was born in Springville, Utah in 1952 to a very strong fam church family. And we had the practices of prayer and family home evening scripture study in our home. So kind of like Nephi, I was born of goodly parents, therefore I was taught. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't active. And in fact, I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't have a testimony. I remember serving as a young man in Argentina, the Argentina North Mission. And back then you had an apostle come to your mission every year. Hmm. So we had Gordon B. Hinckley come, then Elder Hinckley, Elder Marvin J. Ashton and Elder Bruce R. McConkie during the time that I was there. But I remember Marvin J. Ashton it being in Cordoba with maybe 75 or 80 of us in that particular zone conference. And he asked the audience, how many of you can remember the very day that you received your testimony? As if it were the difference between night and day. Mm, yeah. And about half the hands went up. And I wasn't able to raise my hand because I could not remember 
a day in my life that I could point to. And then he said something that was so helpful to me. He said, now the reason why the rest of you can't point to such a day is because you've always known. Hmm. From the time that you were primary children, sitting at the knees of your parents and learning line upon line and precept upon precept. And I knew that that was true for me. So from the time that I was a boy, I always knew that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And I always prayed to Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And I, you know, your testimony clearly grows over the years. But I'm one that was blessed with a gift mentioned in section 46 that to some is given to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Mm. Savior of the world. Yeah. So growing up, I mean, going on a mission wasn't a hard decision for you to make. Oh, no. (laughs) When I was four years old, my uncle came home from his mission. He had served in the Canada-Alberta mission. He was six foot seven. And when he came home, being a four-year-old boy, I looked up to him physically Mm. and spiritually. And I thought, I am going to be a missionary one day, just like this hero of mine. Yeah. And it was always there. I never... There was never a point in my life when I did not plan on going on a mission. Yeah. Then coming home from your mission, I mean, when did you know as far as the direction you wanted to go in your career and what was the story behind that? I think this may be true for many people that your career choice may take a couple of detours. It can shift Mm. as it did for me. So I had started my college down at BYU and I, for my job, I worked for BYU Catering as well as a waiter in the BYU Skyroom. So it was the best job on the BYU campus because the freshmen earned $1.55 an hour, the sophomores $1.60, the juniors $1.60. It, you know, it went up a nickel each year. And But the waiters in the Skyroom also got tips. Oh, nice. So my effective <laughs> wage went up to somewhere between 3 and $4 an hour. And every once in a while, you got a piece of banana cream pie to go with it. <laughs> as well. So (laughs) it was the best job. And I loved the food industry. Yeah. When we got married, we moved up to Logan, where I enrolled in a double major of food science and business administration, thinking that I would be a restauranteur. And then our first son is born and it dawns on me. I don't know why it hadn't before, but it dawns on me that the restaurant business is nights and weekends. (laughs) That's true. Prime family time, prime church time. And I thought, I can't do this. So I made my first change because I had been on a mission to Argentina. My Spanish skills were pretty strong. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for a quick route in my undergraduate studies. So I got my undergraduate degree in Spanish, minor in political science. And then we moved down to Arizona and enrolled in Thunderbird, which is the American School of International Management, the America Graduate School. It's now part of Arizona State University. It's one of their advanced degrees. It's referred to as an MBA of international management. Hmm. So that my Spanish, political science, that international MBA, I couldn't have known where it would lead me. But it, I spent 10 years down there for the church as a mission president, as an area president, both in South America South and in Central America living in Guatemala, Argentina, Uruguay. So my education was perhaps the best education I could get, other than, let's say, ancient scripture and the the kinds of degrees that our brethren get that are in BYU education. And then um, you became, you got into the, I don't know what you could say, training and development world with, with Franklin 
I want to call it Franklin Covey, but Franklin Quest, is that is that accurate? Yeah. How did that come about? So in 1984, actually 83, Hiram Smith, Dick Winwood, who had been working for another time management company, wanted to break out on their own. And uh, I was Hiram's neighbor, played basketball with him every Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning over at the church. And interestingly, his wife, Gail, the only woman that played over there with us, hmm. and she held her own. Well, wow. she was a BYU athlete. She had, she held the record at BYU for the women's broad jump for years. Anyway, little side note, but uh, I knew that he was going to be starting his own company and the uh, three others of us owned a little company called the Franklin company. Hmm. And we were ready to make a change of direction with our company as well. So long story short, Hiram and Dick began the time management seminars and three of us on the other side started Frank. We did change the name from Franklin company to Franklin Institute and Ben Franklin was our namesake. Uh -huh. Yeah. And, and he was quoted, the time quoted, management master, right? <laughs> yes. And we quoted heavily from him in the seminar. A year later, we merged the two companies. It was still Franklin Institute. We brought on Bob Bennett, who became Senator Bennett, hmm. to lead the combined companies. And then six years into it, we went public. We had grown wow. very fast. It was uh, a tiger by the tail. We could hardly keep up with the growth. And at the time we went public, Arlen Crouch, who was, uh, had been with Merrill Lynch, became our new president. Merrill Lynch became our market maker, and then it continued to grow extremely fast. But Merrill Lynch told us, look, you can't call it Franklin Institute anymore. That's not a growth name. So we changed it to Franklin Quest. Years later, I was called to be a mission president in Uruguay, and they merged. Actually, it was Franklin that purchased Covey somewhere around 95 or 96 and uh, became Franklin Covey at that point. Hmm. Wow. So when, when did your church leadership journey begin? When do you feel like that was the, the first step on this long journey that you've been on over the last few decades? Well, uh, as we went public, I was serving as a bishop. And just at the time that we went public, well, we went public in 92. So in early, late 93, I had an interview with Elder David B. Haight. It was a see if you're willing and able interview. And then a couple of months later, I was called into... President Thomas S. Monson's office, where he called us to be mission president and wife. Hmm. We didn't know where we were going at that point. We knew that it would be Spanish speaking, but we didn't know where. And then the call to Uruguay came in January or February of 1994. And so I left Franklin at that time to prepare to be mission president. So I left, let's see, I had been there for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then left to be mission president. So take me to the, the days of being a bishop. How long were you bishop until you were? Just three oh. and a half years. Okay. And then I became mission president. Mm -hmm. In the third year as mission president, I got a call from President Oaks one day, Elder Oaks then. He was going to be coming to Argentina for regional meetings, meetings with missionaries, different missions, and asked me if I would fly from Uruguay over to Buenos Aires and meet with them. And it turned into a see if you're willing and able interview as well. As he concluded the interview, he said, now the result of this interview is that there may be a church opportunity come to you somewhere down the road, or it may never come. And so I said, great, 
flew back to Uruguay. The next day, Elder Tingi, who happened to be traveling with Elder Oaks, came over to Uruguay with Elder Carlos Amado, who was in the area presidency, to have a meeting with the missionaries. It was a very complicated day because 12 missionaries were arriving that very day from the Provo MTC. Mm. We had these general authorities coming over to meet with all of the missionaries in the Montevideo area, about 100 missionaries. So we went to the airport to pick these two general authorities up. 15 minutes later, the missionaries were going to arrive, but the missionaries' flight was two hours late. So now these missionaries were going to be arriving right during the middle of our conference with these general authorities. But we took the Elder Tingi, Elder Amala back to the mission home, had lunch. We were putting on our coats, getting ready to go downtown Montevideo when the phone rings. And Jan answers the phone and she says, it's President Hinckley. <laughs> wow. And Elder Tingi says, you can handle that call. <laughs> so I handled it. And in the next, I was on the phone with him for maybe 20 minutes and he extended a call to be uh, a member of the second quorum of the 70. Wow. And at this point, how much time did you have left in your mission? I, I had, this was maybe a month before general conference, maybe in March. Mm. He invited me to come to general conference. So the turnover or when new mission presidents come is July 1st. So I was March, April, July, March, April, June, July, four months with a two hats on general authority and mission president hmm. and then hit the road running when I came back. Yeah. Yeah. So the intent was to finish the mission out and oh, yeah. as a yeah, 70 they, they, and they yeah. let you finish as you know, your regular term. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And so, and the second quarter of the 70 in those days, it was typically a five year assignment. Is that accurate? It was typically yes, but that was the same year that the third, fourth, and fifth quorums of 70 were created. Hmm. There were about 128 new 70s called that year. And they didn't want to create that big of an increase every five years. So they split that first group of 128 into three groups. A third of them were called for three years, a third for four years, and a third for five years to begin a rotation. Oh, I see. And I was called into the three-year group. Hmm. And they told you that up front? Uh -huh. that yeah. Plan so on I thought, another. oh, well, I can do this yeah. for another three years. And my first assignment was in North America Central. My second assignment, I was sent to Guatemala in the Central America Area Presidency hmm. with Elder William R. Bradford as president. And just in my first year in Guatemala, President Packer came down. I had a private interview with him there in the area offices in Guatemala, and he extended the call to be a member of the first quorum, hmm. and which it, extended my term to 25, from 23 yeah. to 25 years. Yeah, yeah. At this point, I mean, you're in your mid-40s, is that right? Yeah, I was called to be a general authority at age 44. Okay. And then, I mean, is there this feeling of like suddenly, you know, you're, the next few decades are planned for you? Like you just... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it changes your life dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Was that... I mean, were you anxious to get back to maybe your company or things like that? or mm, Not really to Franklin. That was a mountain I had climbed. Okay. And you had left, officially yeah. left. And, and so. You yeah, I had a lot of other plans. Yeah. Yeah. And now you, they had your plans yeah. for you. <laughs> well, and, and there's no greater work than this. Yeah. So, I mean, I was excited. And these last 25 years, up until the time I was given emeritus status this last year, mm -hmm. have been wonderful, delightful. Yeah. Wonderful years. Yeah. 
Did you feel like early on in, you know, maybe those times as a bishop, did you always sort of have a knack for approaching leadership assignments? Obviously you ran sort of a leadership focused company. And so you had principles and, and perspective to bring to that. Uh, what do you remember as far as the, the learning processes there as a, as a young leader? Well, the call to be a mission president was extremely intimidating hmm. to me. It had been mm, maybe 20, close to 25 years since I had spoken Spanish. Oh, wow. And now I was going to be teaching missionaries, priesthood leaders. Uruguay had nine mission districts. So I was the equivalent of a stake president over nine districts mm -hmm. uh, where I would be calling missionaries, setting missionaries apart, first time recommend interviews. And I was nervous. But uh, for the six months that I had prior to actually traveling down, I read the Book of Mormon again in Spanish. And uh, I felt somewhat comfortable. Mm -hmm. President uh, Elder Richard G. Scott said, he's the one that set me apart as mission president. He said, now when your feet touch Uruguayan soil, you are the new mission president. Mm. And the other previous president is released the moment your feet touch. Oh, wow. And, and as we were landing in Montevideo, there wasn't a jetway. There was just steps down to the tarmac. Oh, wow. And I'm going down the <laughs> steps. I'm on the last rung, the last step, <laughs> thinking, mm, I'm, I'm taking the step, and now I am mission president. I had that thought come into my mind. That's cool. The previous president was there to greet us. We went back to the mission home. He and I went into his office. Jan and Sister Brooks went into the kitchen, and we weren't in the office, the mission president's office, more than 15 seconds when the phone rang. And he said, it's for you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. You do hit the road running. Yeah. Yeah. What do you remember as far as the challenges and just sort of finding your footing there as, as the mission president? What, what do you remember from that transition period? Well, having come from the world of time management, mm -hmm. I was a very careful planner. I would plan the year in advance. I had the same experience as bishop. When I was first called to be bishop, I de determined right up front what themes and what doctrines we would be focusing on each month for the next year. Mm. And one week into it, I realized I had to scrap that whole thing and be guided by the Spirit because it was a tough lesson for me and a, a little bit of embarrassing, I suppose, experience for me to understand that this wasn't my ward, it's the Lord's ward, mm -hmm. and he had different plans for it than I did. Yeah, And I found that very same thing true in the mission field that I couldn't really, you had to go for not knowing beforehand the things that you would do. And you would get strong impressions on where, the, where you needed to place attention the coming month with the mission or the ward. Yeah. To be led by the Spirit. Yeah. And that's all, always a tough balance, right? That you want to do the preparation work. I, you know, I noticed this a lot in my own experience of it seems like the best revelation comes about an hour before that state conference talk, you know, like, and, and, and it's nice to just think, well, yeah, that'll come, you know, but at the same time, I want to be ready. And so uh, were there any strategies that you used to not to make sure you rely on the spirit, but also do preparatory work in your planning or scheduling or whatnot? Yeah. So I firmly believe that every doctrine, every Christ-like attribute has a complementary attribute. Hmm. So, for example, we are to avoid the honors of men, but we are to let our light shine at the same time. Right, yeah. Every principle has a balancing principle, whether it's justice and mercy 
or agency and responsibility or love and self-reliance. There isn't one Christ-like attribute that doesn't have a counterbalancing principle to keep it in balance. Mm. So with planning and being led by the Spirit, they have to be balanced. So yes, Nephi, Laman, and Lemuel make plans to get the brass plates, but sometimes those plans don't work. And so the final attempt, Nephi goes not knowing beforehand the things that he should do, but he knew that he needed to get the plates. The vision was there. Mm -hmm. He knew he needed to get them, and he had the confidence and faith in the Lord that if the Lord gave a commandment, the Lord would provide the way. Yeah, and and you lean in. It's a balancing of planning and being led by the Spirit. Yeah, and it makes me go to, you know, the Joseph Smith quote about proving contraries, right? That there's this, uh, sometimes there's these principles that feel like they're contrarian to each other, but as we lean into those and try to find the balance, we'll be guided. Uh, Yeah, but what I'm talking about aren't contraries. Okay. I know the the quote that you're referring to by Joseph Smith, that Mm -hmm. by proving contraries, the truth is made manifest. Mm -hmm. There's another one by Brigham Young that states, the truth is made manifest by contrasting opposites. Okay. So for example, the opposite of justice is not mercy. The opposite of justice is injustice. Hmm. Mercy is a complementary principle. Oh, okay, gotcha. So the Lord, uh, we, we don't use the word versus with justice and mercy, for example. It's not justice versus mercy, but justice and mercy, or science and religion, or faith and works. There's power in the word, word and, or men and women. Mm-hmm. It's not men versus women. Yeah. yeah. So with going back to the contraries, what I would say with contraries or contrasting opposites is what I would call the firefly effect that Adam and Eve couldn't have known the sweet without tasting the bitter, mm-hmm. the contrary mm-hmm. or the opposite. When children learn at the earliest stages of learning, they're learning by contrasting opposites up, down, over, under, cold, hot, and so forth. When you think of Christ-like attributes, well, going back a step, the firefly is a nighttime phenomenon. You don't see the firefly during the day. Mm -hmm. It takes a dark background to manifest the light of the firefly. Stars and fireflies are two examples in the world of nature where a dark background is required to manifest the light. Hmm. The same is true to a degree. Without opposites, we live in a world of opposition. Without opposite, it would be hard to understand what truth is. And that's where the contrary principle that's comes in. That's where the contrary comes in. Yeah. But the complementary is, is a different Compliment, approach. Complementary yeah. is, yeah, it's the companion principle. Mm-hmm. Faith and works. You can't do one without taking the other, no, right? No, in fact, any virtue by itself is a half-truth. A half-truth may be true by itself, but incomplete. And if it's incomplete, it's unbalanced. So a great talk given by President Oaks in 1992, strengths that we can cause our downfall or can become our weakness, if you take any virtue to an extreme, mm. it becomes a weakness. It morphs into its opposite. So, for example, justice without mercy, depicted poignantly in Les Mis with Javert, who is so focused on justice that when a little bit of mercy is shown to him, his mind 
cannot reconcile the resulting cognitive dissonance, and uh, it just discombobulates him. Yeah. That's justice without mercy. In order for justice to be an attribute, it has to be moderated by mercy. Otherwise, it mutates into its opposite injustice. Mm. And this is where my mind goes, but I see that a lot, this, the virtue of love, you know, it's easy to simplify the, the God, you know, gospel saying the gospel is just about love. But if that virtue is taken to an extreme, it can discombobulate, you know, that there's sort of that. Yeah. So uh, take love, yeah. for example, love taken to an extreme becomes permissive, enabling. Mm-hmm. This one, for me, a, a strong complementary principle with love is self-reliance. So love without self-reliance is Santa Claus. Self-reliance without love is Scrooge. Either one of them by itself is unhealthy. We tend to hold Santa Claus in high esteem and Scrooge in contempt, but of the two, it's actually Santa Claus that does the greater damage. As evidenced by, let's say, fourth, fifth generation welfare recipients Mm -hmm. here in the United States. But another good story or example to illustrate this is Helen Keller. Helen Keller, you're familiar with her autobiography made into at least three different Hollywood movies, mm-hmm. The Miracle Worker, yeah, or her book, The Story of My Life, Helen Keller. But if you remember in the movie, it depicts her parents as loving and caring and understanding of their deaf and blind child. But they weren't balancing it with self-reliance. They allowed her to eat like an animal at the dinner table. Mm. Finally, when Ann Sullivan, a teacher of the blind and deaf, came along and started teaching or the complementary principle of self-reliance, it was Ann Sullivan that helped Helen Keller rise to her true potential more than her parents. Her parents was love without self-reliance. Yeah. And and so many see that, you know, her depiction as, oh, she was was not very loving. She was kind of mean, right? But again, it was the self-reliance that was that was uh, she introduced that helped her help Helen Keller flourish. Right. And actually, and you can't fault uh, Helen Keller, Keller's parents because they were extremely loving, compassionate, understanding because this was Helen for heaven's sake. You had to be compassionate and kind. She's blind and deaf, but they were actually crippling her Mm. because they weren't balancing it with self-reliance. Yeah. So take this concept into a church leadership world. Like where do you typically see Examples of, of this balance or complementary approach come in? So with bishops, you know that bishops have five different roles, the common judge, the presiding high priest, etc. If you take a look at any one of those, as common judge, it's the balancing of justice and mercy. There are no two cases the, the same. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's no point at which every case has to be determined by the spirit weighing the many variables that involve that case. So even if you had a young man and a young woman, let's say that were immoral with one another, but the young man is a return missionary and has received his temple covenants and has made sacred promises where the young woman hadn't, then even though it was the same incident, you're going to treat the two people differently yeah, with yeah. a different level of justice and mercy. Yeah, or the the bishop is over welfare, so it goes back to this same thing of love and self reliance. 
and there are just too many bishops that want to be Santa Claus, and it ends up hurting enabling members yeah. who are receiving welfare assistance. I remember President Packer teaching me years ago, if you have a member come to you looking for help, such as welfare help, you have to ask them two questions. Do you want help? Yes, Bishop, that's why I'm here. Are you willing to follow counsel? Now, there's great wisdom in that second question, Hmm. because so many want the help, but are not willing to follow counsel. And the bishop that asks the second question, are you willing to follow counsel, will preempt a hundred problems. Because then you can get into some, let me come back to this, I'm going to teach a, a third complementary principles here with the presiding high priest, the bishop as the presiding high priest, where he's got to balance ministering with administration. Mm-hmm. If you spend more time in administration, you have less hours to spend ministering. So you're looking for a balance between these two as well. And President Monson once said, we have too many bishops that are trying to solve welfare problems with the checkbook rather than the handbook. Mm. So there's a balancing there, checkbook, handbook. Yeah. <laughs> the administrative solution is always easier than the ministering solution, meaning to write a check, easy. Yeah. The ministering solution is getting into the budget. It's looking at their expenses for the last six months. It's going over their, their self-reliance planning form. It takes a lot of time for the Relief Society president, the Elders Quorum president, the bishop, to go through all of this. But that's where you're going to help them long term. So it gets back to the balance also to complementary principles. We all know this quote. You can give a man a fish and feed him for a day. That's charity. But it would be far wiser to teach him the art of fishing. This is self-reliance and feed him for a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. So the ministering solution. The uh, self-reliance solution, the Ann Sullivan helping Helen Keller, it has to be there. It has to be balanced where you have love run amok. Yes, yes. And, and in leadership context, often there's a problem, right? Like somebody brings in, whether you created the problem as a leader or somebody's bringing you their problem. And naturally, we just want to fix the problem with, it. like, for example, the checkbook and move yeah. on. Great problem solved. Move on to the next thing. And I guess, you know, it goes, you know, I think of maybe another complementary principle of, of uh, justification and sanctification. We want to justify their problem, yeah. get rid of it, move on. And, and you could say that the, you know, the Savior does that for us. He justified, we have a huge problem as a fallen man, but he doesn't just want to justify us. He wants to sanctify us in the problem. So we can't just solve the problem. We have to also look for opportunities for growth in that, yeah. that journey. Exactly. Right? So he justifies us, but at the same time, he cannot consider sin in the least degree of allowance. Yeah. There's balancing here. Yeah. The whole gospel is, to me, it's like a big jigsaw puzzle. And uh, these interlocking pieces have to have one another. So you take, let's go back to love for a minute. Consider this scenario. A mother delegating a spoon to a one-year-old, knowing that the child is going to make a mess in a four-foot radius of that high chair. (laughs) Yeah. She knows that. Yeah. Th- this is a good case study in the, the uh, Christ-like virtue of charity for me. When you consider the component virtues that are, are at play in this scenario, it's patience, it's long-suffering. Her love increases her tolerance level for messes, mm-hmm. self-reliance, kindness, compassion. There are so many virtues at play here. She 
beareth all things, she suffereth all things, she hopeth all things, her charity never faileth. Uh, this, this scenario of the one-year-old with the spoon, and you can, uh, in your mind, envision the one-year-old throwing the spoon down on the floor with one hand and their sippy cup from the other hand in an act of defiance, but the mother is patient. She's understanding. She's kind. She has hope. She has faith. She knows that where this is all leading. So she's tolerant of the messes and the defiance mm. in the meantime. Yeah. So take us and whether we stay in the realm of this principles and concepts you're talking about, but you know, I know a lot of your uh, conference talked of uh, talked about repentance and this, uh, you know, forgiveness. And this is is really difficult navigating this as as a judge in Israel. As somebody comes into that office and confesses, or you know, sometimes we we feel like, well, we got to do something, or I, I don't know how to handle it. What what can you teach us just about that process of repentance, forgiveness? So first of all, let me talk about let's say a young man or a young woman coming into the bishop's office. The bishop is a common judge, and I, I know too many people that have left the bishop's office feeling condemned. Mm. They didn't feel the Savior's love as they left the bishop's office. So I like to point to Luke chapter 9, the last part of the chapter, the Savior has passed by village of Samaritans who don't receive him. They treat him rudely, and it so offends James and John, who were with him, that they say to him, Lord, should we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he rebukes his two apostles and says, you don't know what kind of spirit you're possessed of. The Son of Man came into the world not to destroy lives, but to save lives. Mm. So whenever I saw a case that was, let's say, on the 50-yard line, the First Presidency always leans to the side of mercy. Mm. And I gave a talk several years ago in general conference called The Righteous Judge. Mm -hmm. A youth going into the bishop's office should leave the bishop's office feeling the love of the Savior demonstrated through the bishop and the hope of the atonement and his grace. And uh, I would also link this to another general conference talk that I gave, which was until 70 times 7, mm -hmm. that how many chances do we need? Mm -hmm. This is a gospel of a million second chances. Yeah. I began that talk by talking about if you're going to learn a musical instrument, let's say the piano, how many mistakes are you going to make in learning to play that piano? A lot. Probably yeah. a million. Yeah. Or those that have learned a second language, how many mistakes are you going to make speaking that language? I a made million. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still make mistakes with Spanish. Yeah. And I've been speaking it for 40 years, mm -hmm. 50 years now. But I still make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, but with errors of the heart, and I love this quote from the Savior. There's a couple of different quotes. As often as my people do repent, I will forgive them. Or in the Book of Mormon, as often as my people do repent with real intent, I will forgive them. So that repentance, I, I use this quote in that talk, that our success in life is going from failure to failure without any loss of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. But it's really growing from failure to failure without any loss of, of enthusiasm. So someone that understands this principle isn't going to be discouraged because they're not playing a piece on the piano perfectly. They know that they're improving. They know mm -hmm. that they're growing. Mm -hmm. And aren't we all grateful for a loving Father in heaven that gives us a million second chances? Yeah, for sure. And I guess it gets tricky as, you know, you feel like, you know, again, 
bringing in the handbook, you sort of feel like, all right, there's sort of, depending on what they're confessing, there's sort of some level of restriction I was supposed to offer. And we sort of get caught up in the timetables or timelines or restrictions or whatnot. But we also put that up against the scripture where it seemed like the savior forgave immediately, you know, and offered that forgiveness there. And, and so how can we better understand just these, the timeline of uh, some, maybe someone's repentance process or a restoration of, of blessings? The handbook gives some wonderful guidance here as well. Let's assume that it's someone who has committed a moral infraction years ago mm-hmm. and they've been suffering in silence. Sometimes when they finally confess, that is the final step of the repentance process, not the beginning. Mm-hmm. They've been suffering. But every case is so unique that you can't apply the same standard to every single case in the same way that, that you always do. So with the Savior and the woman taken at scene, you have so many interesting variables at play in that scenario. You've got the Pharisees who have condemned her. Mm-hmm. So he's teaching them and the people that are witnessing this as much as teaching the woman taken in sin. He knows that in this particular case, there needs to be more mercy shown, where in other cases, it may be justice. And in ancient Israel, when someone committed an infraction, they had to offer up a sin sacrifice in similitude of the greater sacrifice that the Savior would pay for that very same sin. Mm -hmm. And to not make some kind of a sacrifice was a mockery of his greater sacrifice. So that when you take the word sacrifice to make holy, Mm -hmm. a bishop is doing a kind thing by helping someone sacrifice. It's not a punishment. Discipline comes from the same root word as disciple, which means to teach. So there may be some discipline, but that's to teach and to help, and to help someone come forward with a sacrifice so that you're... uh, basically doing what the Savior did for you. Yeah. Even a greater sacrifice. Yeah. And that's the tough part. You know, the handbook, I think in the recent updates, is very clear of making sure that repentance should not be a punishment, right? And that's hard for some individuals to get away from, whether it's the the leader or the individual going through the process, because it seems like uh, this is just a punishment. I need to sit in the timeout, you know, corner for, for so long. And so until and I learn that's the way it, yeah. most of, I think, The world thinks that way. Yeah. And even a lot of members of the church think that way. Mm -hmm. But when you think the way the world thinks, let's take a court and attorneys, plaintiffs, defendants, a guilty verdict, prison sentence. The way the world views this is mercy is commuting the sentence and not sending them to prison. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite with the Lord's kingdom. So with sin, it is not the bishop or the state presidency or the high council that puts them in spiritual prison. Sin puts them in spiritual prison. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. the bishop or the council has the keys to unlock the prison doors to allow their escape. So in Doctrine and Covenants section 95 verse 1, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. For with the chastening, he prepares a way for their deliverance. Or if you compare it to the world of medicine, If a person had a serious injury, or let's say cancer, that needed to be cut out, giving them a Band-Aid is not kind. In fact, giving them a Band-Aid would be cruel. Where the kind thing is to actually take a scalpel, excise the tumor, and it may put them in bed, and it may make them feel horrible for a few days, but it's actually the merciful, kind thing. 
whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. <laughs> Chasten coming from the same root word as chaste, to make pure, mm-hmm. to make holy. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, and that framing it in, you know, in, in the prison that often it can feel like I went to the bishop's office and he locked me up, you know, <laughs> with these restrictions no, and whatnot. He, but, no, he's helping them yeah, escape. Yeah. And oftentimes that person may come back week after week and think, and they're essentially they're saying, Bishop, I keep locking myself in this prison of sin, right? I can't, can you help me figure out how to unlock it for good? And yeah. so that I can get that, that and, and freedom. And this gets back to the sacrifice. They're, mm-hmm. they're bringing forth their sin sacrifice mm-hmm. in similitude or symbolically of the greater sacrifice that the Savior suffered for that very same sin. Yeah. To not bring forth some sacrifice is a mockery of his greater sacrifice. Yeah. Is there anything you would say to bishops um, as far as how to better uh, facilitate that feeling of we are unlocking you from the prison of sin rather than we are restricting you and, you know, condemning you? It would be to approach it the way the Savior did. So I do think the woman taken in sin is a remarkable example. Mm -hmm. He didn't send her away feeling condemned. And no member of the church having gone into the bishop's office should leave the bishop's office feeling condemned. Now, it wasn't totally mercy. Mm-hmm. There was some justice there mm-hmm. because he did say, now go and sin no more. But he loved her. And a youth leaving a bishop's office should never feel condemned. Yeah. But feeling the hope and the joy of the atonement, hope that they ought to leave the bishop's office. I call the bishop's office sometimes the garbage dump. <laughs> and people carry garbage on their shoulders, the sin. And when they're able to finally confess, they are able to leave the garbage there at the garbage dump and leave his office feeling lighter than they felt in months or years. And it should be a liberating, a wonderful feeling leaving his office, a feeling of love and hope and joy, yeah. grace, the atonement. Yeah, that's really helpful. Talk to me, just, you've had experience for decades now to go into a stake as a visiting authority during a, a state conference. Um, and I remember being in a stake presidency, sort of feeling that, you know, hope, you know, sometimes it feels like uh, the visiting authority is walking in there with a clipboard and, you know, and, and I don't think anybody intends that, but you just want to make sure you're doing a good job and, and portraying and leading the, 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 the stake the best way possible. So how did you prepare for going to and visiting a stake for a state conference weekend? One of our foremost objectives going to a state conference is to support that state president and to magnify him in the eyes of the members of his stake. So one of the things that I always did, and I think most of the brethren do, we we have what is called a state conference planning guide. That was prepared probably 25 years ago by President Packer. And just to give you a backstory on this form, Going back 25 years, when there was a state conference, President Packer would send out uh, maybe a quarter-inch packet of materials, statistics, trend lines, attendance figures for all the different auxiliaries, etc. And then he began to realize, when you consider two other complementary doctrines or Christ-like attributes or principles, do and be, do without be, Well, let me start with be without do. Be without do, like faith without works, or charity without ministering is dead being alone. Mm -hmm. The contrary, do without be, is to be a pretender. It's to portray a false image to others, 
making others believe you're better than you are simply because you're going through the motions. The Lord referred to that as hypocrisy. He called the Pharisees on it constantly. They had the appearance of godliness, but denied the power thereof. They drew near unto him. They honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So it's these two that go together. They are an inseparable pair, be and do. Do, you can count. Do, you can earn a check mark. Be, you can't earn a check mark. So for example, do you have a child? Yeah, three of them. <laughs> What's your youngest child? Uh, she's uh, two. What's her uh, name? Mariah. Mariah. When can you check Mariah off your list as done? <laughs> well, I mean, we like to think maybe 18, 19, but uh, that's <laughs> but, not the but case. But not even then. Yeah. Because we're never through being parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you can do things to be a good father for Mariah today. Yeah. So we can put things on our to-do list that help us become better. Mm-hmm. If it's a statistic, it is by definition the verb do. You can count do, but you cannot count be. So President Packer would say the most important things happening in a particular stake are never going to show up on a sheet of statistics Mm. because they can't be seen. So for example, you can't count conversion. Mm -hmm. You can't count testimony. You can't count forgiveness. You can't count love between husbands and wives. These are things that will never show up on a sheet of statistics. But they are what the Savior referred to in Matthew 23 as the weightier matters. Mm-hmm. In that particular verse, the Savior once again condemns the Pharisees. He says, Ye do pay your tithe in mint and anise and cumin, but are neglecting the weightier matters of the law justice, mercy, faith. These things ought ye to have done without leaving the other undone. So the Savior identified B, these things that cannot be counted as the weightier matters. And to kind of portray this with two or three examples, a person could get baptized. That's something that's done. It's the verb do. But the way to your be is the mighty change of heart and faith in Jesus Christ. That's even more important. Yeah. We can go to the temple. That's something that we do, and it's very important. But being truly worthy of that recommend is a way to your matter. Mm-hmm. A man can have hands laid on his head and have the priesthood conferred and be ordained to an office in the priesthood. That's something that's done. It's something we can count. But power in the priesthood is based upon the principles of righteousness. Be the weightier man. Yeah. So when President Packer realized that by sending out a packet of statistics, he was causing the state presidency to actually focus on the lesser, he said, I'm never going to do that again. Hmm. So he no longer sent statistics out for a state conference, he started sending out one sheet called the State Conference Planning Guide, and it was to focus the state presidency on three very important Bs. The first question on that form was, what are you doing as a state presidency to increase faith in our Father in Heaven and Jesus Christ and His Atonement? What are you doing to strengthen home and family? So I would take two hours to go over this form with the state presidency. And one of the other questions on this form was, what's going well in your stake? And what what are things that concern you? What do you worry about? What keeps you awake at night? And then I would ask the two counselors first and end with the stake president. And they would uh, share each the two or three things that keep them awake, things that worry them, things that are concerning. And then based upon what they would tell me, That's what I would focus my attention on during the state conference weekend to support them in what their concerns and worries were. And 
Sometimes it's the members getting too caught up in the things of the world. It ends up being time management. They don't have enough time for their church callings, et cetera. Apathy is a huge one. And then, especially in the general session, I would pay very close attention to the stake president's message to the stake. And then I would base my comments on what he said and support the message that he gave to the audience. And you don't know what he's going to say until Sunday morning, right? (laughs) No, but you know, after 25 years of experience, you've had so many experiences and Mm -hmm. stories and you know the scriptures well enough that you can support him and teach from a a little bit different perspective and just add to what he said. Yeah. And I love this concept of the the do's and the be's because in leadership, there's such this gravitational pull to the do's or the statistics, right? Because we want the the weightier matters to to be emphasized, but they're so nuanced. And again, there's not a statistic. To well, look they at, always right? go together. Yeah, so they you, do. Yeah. We, we can't say that the do's aren't important. Right, right? exactly. It's yeah. important. Partaking of the sacrament is important, but that's why the brethren will oftentimes come back to the first principle of the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. There's greater power in that and being truly worthy of that recommended, worthy to partake of the sacrament. Yeah. I mean, because it's hard as a leader, sometimes you just bang the drum of the do's because you think, well, I want the the bees to happen, but I don't know, it almost seems like a prerequisite. So you have to get the do's in line and then magically the bees just happen. But in reality, it's not necessarily prerequisite no, I mean, I'll, they're happening yeah, simultaneously. I'll give, you, I'll give you another interesting example. Yeah. When President Hinckley was prophet, he was looking at statistics, baptismal statistics from different countries of the world. Let's take Chile. Mm-hmm. There were high baptisms in Chile. The Santiago missions in the mid-90s were hitting between 500 and 1,000 baptisms per month. Wow. And when you take all of the other missions of Chile... Concepcion, Osorno, Viña del Mar, Antofagasta, etc. I'll bet that country was experiencing thirty to 40,000 baptisms a month, enough to create many new stakes and almost one new stake per month in Santiago. There were that many baptisms in Santiago. Hmm. But when President Hinckley looked at the retention numbers, let's say 40,000 baptisms, but sacrament meeting attendance hadn't gone up at all. And so you you have to ask what's happening here. Mm-hmm. A lot People, of doing, not a lot of being. A lot of it, doing. Yeah. People going out the back door. So yeah. he sent Elder Holland down there for two years. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah. Elder Holland was the area president for two years down there, and it was okay. You've you've done a lot. The statistics look incredible, but the true growth. Mm-hmm. What is the true growth? And so there was a heavy focus on real growth, true growth, and so. As important as convert baptisms is, sacrament meeting attendance was a better indicator of real growth, or men ordained to the priesthood was a better indicator of real growth than convert baptisms. You can't say that convert baptisms aren't important, but that's a do without the be. Yeah, that's really helpful. And and it's just, it's such a... Because it's easy for leaders to sort of beat themselves up about the do's, right? But to just realize that there's a bigger picture here and uh, not to get too hyper-focused there. I was talking to a man who had just been called as a bishop. He was so intimidated. He was frightened by the calling because he didn't have that much experience under his belt. Mm-hmm. He didn't have that much education. 
And that's where we talked about, well, that's what the world looks for. They look for degrees. They look for years of experience. They look for skills. But that's not what the Lord looks for. The Lord calls the weak and the simple of the earth Mm -hmm. to lead his church. And I knew this man loved people. He was a hard worker. He was a humble man who would get on his knees. I said, goodness, just with those three Christ-like attributes, love, hard work, humility, the Lord can work miracles through such a man, more so than a man with degrees and experience, et cetera. The Lord works through the humble, the holy. Yeah. He yeah, looks at a completely different set of mm, yeah. attributes. Yeah. That, that was one of the principles you, you uh, had mentioned before, just this concept of how the world sees, you know, accolades and titles and whatnot. Anything else to add to that? Or is, is that yeah, somewhat? We, no, we've, I think of who the Savior called as his disciples. Yeah. It wasn't the leading rule, rulers of his day. It was fishermen. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he, when he called Peter, James, and John, when they, those that were fishing and said, I will make you fishers of men, we sometimes, we don't study that phrase. He didn't say you will become fishers of men. He said, I will make you fishers of men. And I don't know of any phrase that President Monson used to quote more than when you're on the Lord's errand, you're entitled to the Lord's help. And whom the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies. So he calls the weak and the simple, and he qualifies them. He helps them become fishers of them. Yeah, so true. Anything else about the stake conference dynamic or approach or that uh, we haven't mentioned? Just It's one of the funnest things that we get to do. Yeah. <laughs> is be out among the people. That and on mission tours, etc. And no matter where you go in the world, and I've been to most of the islands of the Pacific, and I've been to the Philippines, I've been to, I think, every nation of Latin America except Venezuela. Hmm. No matter where you go, you are with people with whom you share the deepest things of life. So you have an incredible strong bond with them immediately Mm. because you do share the deepest things of life. So you have an immediate love for the people, no matter where you go. Yeah. And what what do you mean by deepest things of life? Your testimony, faith in Jesus Christ, a knowledge of the gospel, gospel truths. So you have, even though they may speak the same language with, the person that lives on the same block that they do in the Philippines, if it's Tagalog or or Spanish in Latin America, you go, you actually have a stronger bond with them than they do with their next door neighbor Mm -hmm. because you share these deepest bonds of life with them. Yeah. Is there anything that you did? I know, you know, a lot of visiting authorities will do, you know, have the local leaders plan some visits and homes and whatnot. Is there any, because it's easy to, I don't not say easy, but it's typical that you'll stand and address a general group and move on to the next meeting, address a general group. Was there anything you did to really make it more of a one-to-one experience with Yeah, I, I think most of us would always go to a state conference early, arriving Friday night. Mm-hmm. And I like to spend, just have dinner with the state president and his wife on Friday night to serve them, mm. to get to know them. And then Saturday morning, the stake president and I would go out and visit, do ministering visits. I did like to have his counselors go out with two elders quorum presidents and the Relief Society presidency go out with ward Relief Society presidents. And we would each go out and visit at least two, often three families. And I liked the stake president to choose a family that needed the next ordinance on the covenant path. 
so that we could extend an invite. Before we went out, we would talk about principles of effective ministry. We would read from Luke chapter 15, The Lost Sheep. We would read from Alma 31, where Alma and several others are going out to visit the less active, let's say, of the Zoramites. We would pick out principles, principles of effective ministry, one of which is that we teach in chapter 11 of Preach My Gospel. No matter how good the visit may seem, it's not going to be as good if you don't extend an invite of some kind. Hmm. When you hear the 12 give a general conference talk, it will always include an invite of some kind. So with the next ordinance needed, it may be an invitation to get baptized, an invitation to come back to sacrament meeting, an invitation to get sealed in the temple. It's just an invitation to receive the next ordinance on the covenant path. And a lot of missionaries and others are frightened to extend invites. So sometimes I would take missionaries through this little scenario. Of 10 people that you invite to come to sacrament meeting, how many of the 10 actually show up? And around the world, it's the same answer wherever I've been, <laughs> whether it's been in the Pacific, the Philippines, South America, it's about two of 10. Oh, wow. Okay. I say, well, do the other eight believe, are they liars? Or are they just telling you what they consider a white lie so they don't have to come? They'd rather tell you a lie than disappoint you. Uh-huh. So I'll ask the missionaries, would you rather have a true no or a false yes? They will always say, I'd rather have a true no. Why? Because then I can teach to their doubts. I can resolve their concerns. Mm. If that's true, that you'd rather have a true no than a false yes, then should you be afraid of the answer no? And if you're no longer afraid of the answer no, then you'll overcome your fear of extending invites. Yeah. At least to a degree. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I like to teach missionaries is let the Savior do the inviting. Don't you do the inviting, let him. So if you're inviting them to, maybe it's a part member family and you're going to invite the non-member to get baptized, then go to uh, 2 Nephi chapter 31, verse 10 through 12, for example, where it's the Savior inviting people to follow him and get baptized. Brother Jones, how do you feel about the Savior's invitation to follow him and get baptized? Will you accept the Savior's invitation to Mm. be baptized? So no matter what the invitation is, if you can find a scripture where it's the Savior doing the inviting, that makes the missionary or the priesthood leader far more bold in extending the invite. So it was fun for me to go out and make these ministering visits. Yeah. Anything, I love this uh, this idea of having a clear invite or, or leaving them with an, an invite or extending an invite. Sometimes it's tricky for young leaders to walk into a home and know what to say or to talk about, or is there any, anything else that any advice you'd give for a leader walking into a home and trying yes. to connect? Yeah. A question that I found to be very helpful is brother Jones, would you be willing to share your experience in the church? Hmm. And if they're inactive, yeah, they'll share, they'll share their experience in the church. It then allows you to get to know their background and their history. And, and they will oftentimes Say, yeah, and I know I need to come back. And so that's one question that really helps to open up conversation. Would you be willing to share your experience Mm. in the church? Another question that I like to ask after what we used to call home teachers and visiting teachers, now ministering brothers and ministering Mm -hmm. sisters, after you finish a visit with the family that you're visiting with, what is the question that we all ask worldwide as we're about to leave? Is there anything we can do for you? And how do the people answer that 99.9% of the time? Nope. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which it's a good question, but it's a totally useless question. 
I agree. Totally ineffective. Yeah. So for years, and I did this with the stake presidencies, I will ask the family, if it's not too personal, we want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. What are the things that keep you awake at night? Mm -hmm. What are your, perhaps your top two concerns that cause you to worry? They do answer that question. I know Mm -hmm. that because I've been doing it for years. And they'll say, well, I've got a school and I'm worried about him, or I've got a daughter that's wavering, or I've got a sick mother in the hospital. Sometimes it may be too personal and they won't share with you until they get to know you a little bit better. But that's a far better question to ask is, what are your concerns? What keeps you awake at night? Because that helps them answer a specific. Yeah. It's a far no, it's better so ministering question than is there anything we can do for you? Yeah, really powerful. Teach us about, break down this concept of uh, the famous Elder Packer quote of the, the true principles understood will change the behaviors better than then a focus on behaviors will change behaviors. This is, I hear often used and I often, I think we miss it or maybe we don't go as deep with it as we need. So how could we understand that better in a leadership context? There's also a terrific verse from Alma 31, verse five, that is essentially the same principle that Alma discovering that the preaching of the word had a greater impact on the hearts of the people than the sword or anything else. Therefore he determined to try the virtue of the word of God. Mm -hmm. And we know, having read the Book of Mormon, that the Book of Mormon missionaries had a far greater impact on the Lamanites than Captain Moroni and all of his armies, Mm -hmm. or the wars throughout the Book of Mormon. Because teaching doctrine changes a person from the inside out, where the sword or spanking or is trying to change a person from the outside in by focusing on behavior, where behavior is usually simply a symptom of what is in their, or evidence of what is in their heart. And you can't ever change a person, person's behavior until you change the beliefs in their mind and heart that is driving that behavior. Mm -hmm. So over the long run, teaching doctrine does change behavior. Mm -hmm. So a wise parent, I'll just share an experience with my daughter. My oldest daughter years ago, this is going back some decades ago, it was an Sunday morning, I was in my office when she comes into my office early in the morning and she says, Dad, can I watch Jaws on television this afternoon? Well, I didn't want to answer the question because we'd had our family home evenings on what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy. And, uh, you know, the church does not have a policy on watching TV. BYU sees the good in the world on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And we broadcast General Conference on Sunday. And there may be programming that actually draws people closer to Jesus Christ on Sunday. I did not think Jaws was appropriate for (laughs) Sunday, (laughs) but I wanted her to come to this conclusion on her own. Uh So I said, I'm not going to answer this question. You can answer this question. What she was hoping is that I would say, yes, you can watch it. And if I said that, then she can watch it uh, (laughs) guilt-free. She's just passed the guilt to me. Uh Well, she left my office a little bit frustrated comes back in five minutes later and says, please, can I watch it? Well, I hadn't denied her the first time, but here she is trying to pass the buck to me again. I said, I'm not going to answer this question. You can answer this question. She leaves my office a second time. This is gratifying to me to see her wrestling, Uh pondering. And by the way, just to help children become self-reliant, coming back to the Mm -hmm. Helen Keller story, it's so important that they become self-reliant on their own. 
And President Packer also, I'm sorry for a footnote to the story before I come back to it. That quote, you can give a man a fish and feed him for a day, but it would be far wiser to teach them the art of fishing and feed them for a lifetime. President Packer would say that same principle applies to things of the spirit. Yeah, you can give a child a decision and help them today, but it would be far wiser to teach them the art of spiritual fishing and help them make their own wise decisions and make them independent for a lifetime. If I could change slightly the prophet Jesus said when he said we teach them correct principles so they can govern themselves, I would change it to concerning children. We teach them correct principles because whether we like it or not, they are going to govern themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My only hope, my only chance is to teach my daughter how to make wise decisions. Because if I don't, if I, I would actually cripple her if I tried to answer every decision for her. Mm-hmm. My only hope for her, because one day she's going to turn 19 or 20, she'll no longer be living under my roof. If I haven't taught her how to make wise decisions, there's a chance I could lose her. She's going to be on her own. So I've got to let her make decisions. This is what I was doing on this particular occasion. Mm-hmm. So she comes back in to my office a third time and she says, Dad, I've made my decision. I'm going to watch it. (laughs) So I thought, well, I've already told her twice she could. So Uh I'm not going to force or or coerce. Uh But the Holy Ghost is a person's greatest accuser. So I'm going to let the Holy Ghost do the teaching here. And hopefully by the time this movie comes on, she'll decide not to. So we go to church that morning. It's the afternoon. It's time for Jaws to come on, and I'm thinking she's not going to do it, but she does. She goes over and turns on the television, and then I'm thinking, well, she'll, she'll turn it off here in just a bit. No, she watches the whole thing. <laughs> but being a 10-year-old girl watching Jaws, that night she had a nightmare in answer to my prayers. <laughs> she came into my office, and she said, Dad, I'm feeling bad about the decision I made yesterday, I should not have watched that movie. And I thought, mm, my daughter is learning from her own experience yeah. to distinguish right from wrong. If I had forced her, I might have, in the words of Joseph F. Smith, planted a seed of rebellion. And it might have had the opposite effect as the one that I was hoping for. She's a wonderful wife, a wonderful mother. And I did make a mistake. If I could go back and do it again, I would have taught her the doctrine and principles right there at the crossroads Mm -hmm. so it could be fresh in her mind. If you don't mind, I'm going to tell you one more story. Yeah, a little bit. President Nelson has shared the experience of helping his daughter make a similar decision. She wanted to go sleigh riding on Sunday, and he took her to the book of Exodus 31, verse 13, where it talks about this being a sign between Israel and Jehovah and then put the decision back on her shoulders. Hmm. How do you feel about this? She said, well, I want to show Heavenly Father that I love him, so I'm not going to go. I would do what President Nelson did, which is to teach the doctrine right at the point of the decision, which I didn't. Hmm. But it, it turned out fine, and my daughter did learn. Yeah, But you do run a risk, leaving a child at the crossroads, letting them make their own decisions. But isn't that going to happen one day anyway? Yeah, absolutely. Might as well get ahead of it when you're, you can teach. And, and right? When you can yeah. teach and let them grow, just like we just started this discussion, going from failure to failure without any yeah. loss of enthusiasm. Yeah. 
And then not only was the the behavior maybe the correct behavior instilled, but uh, there was a growth. There was a transformation that happened in your daughter rather than yes. you just saying, no, we don't watch because Jaws. Because it happened yeah. in her heart. Yeah. I wasn't trying to control her behavior from the outside in. This was changing her behavior from the inside out. Yeah. Tell me about, you know, we, we discussed before we recorded this, this concept of leadership types and this, you know, this is probably a, a worth four four podcasts on its own, but I think it relates to that ex- experience because we want to show love as leaders, but sometimes it's, it feels like it's hard to show love when we have hard expectations or whatnot. To, so maybe lay this out for us as far as how a leader can approach situations like you had with your daughter where, and maybe it's in a quorum where, you know, we really want to get ministering going. And so I'm going to really set some high expectations for my quorum, but then everybody just walks out feeling like condemned, right? as you talked about earlier, rather than like, oh, I love coming to Elders Quorum and I'd love to be involved in the work of the Lord and whatnot. So how does that balance of love and expectations work? So the Savior had high expectations and he loved. So whenever you have those two attributes not balanced, so if you have love but low expectations, then it leads to apathy. Mm -hmm. If you have high expectations but low love, that was the Pharisees. It's also a helicopter parent. It's a drill sergeant. It's getting things accomplished, but with resentment. As in Jaws is not watched on Sunday. That's the end of story. And discontent. (laughs) Yeah. So when you think of leaders that had high expectations and love like the Savior, and they're leading by example, when you look at uh, Mosiah, where you read in Mosiah chapter 29 that he was loved beyond measure, he loved them, but he worked alongside of them. He led by example. And so when, when you lead by example, like the Savior did, and you, you're inspired by the things he did and the way he was, then you can say as he did, you know the things which he should do in my church for the things which he have seen me do, that shall ye also do. That's from 3 Nephi chapter 29. Same chapter, what manner of men and women ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. So he, he's really the only one that had the right to say, what manner of men ought she to be? And you know the things which she should do. But we oftentimes, when we're at a moral fork in the road, we will ask ourselves, what would Jesus do in this situation? Which is a very good question. Let's take uh, forgiveness. Someone has offended us, and we have to make a decision on whether we will forgive or not. And so we might ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? Good question, but a more profound question, the way to your question is, how would he be? If you're only a do-forgiver and you haven't become a forgiving person like him, then every time you arrive at that moral fork in the road, you have to make the decision over and over mm-hmm. and over and over. Whereas if you have become a forgiving person, it becomes a spiritual reflex. And you don't even have to... So everything that we do is helping us to become. Mm-hmm. With the change from home teaching and visiting teaching to ministering brothers and sisters, it was hopefully a focus, a change from do, earning a check mark. I did my visit, to becoming, actually loving the people. And I think coming back to the question, what do you worry about? What are your concerns? What keeps you awake at night? Then we can truly pray for them. And as we pray for them, if you can envision in your mind do and be as a circle with be at the top at the 12 o'clock position 
and do at the six o'clock position. We draw an arrow from do to B or from B to do and an arrow from do to B because they're interstrengthening. The more we minister, the more we actually love the people that we're serving. Or faith would be a B, pray would be a do. The more we pray and have answers to prayers, the greater our faith becomes. Mm -hmm. So they're interconnected, interstrengthening. And this shift from a do checklist, you earned your checklist, to a B, the question that we used to ask home teachers and visiting teachers was, did you do your home teaching? Meaning, did you, <laughs> did you get your check mark for yeah, the month? Right. I think in ministering interviews now with the Elders Quorum Presidency, it, it has by definition changed to B questions. It's an update on the family. In what way were you a good home teacher? a good ministering brother, I should say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this month. So the change from home teaching to ministering has in great measure been a shift from do to be, although the do is still important. Right, right. Yeah, that's really helpful. And with this, you know, having high expectations as the Savior did and high love, the, the love part sometimes gets me as a leader, you know, because it's like... I know how to walk into an elders quorum as an elders quorum presidency and saying, we need to increase our ministering efforts. You know, this is what that looks like. And, and when it comes time to show love, I, a lot of leaders, including myself, sometimes don't know what to do other than to stand in front of the room and say, I love you. Now let's get onto those ministering, you know, dues, right. And any advice you give as far as how, how do you have high love for people? Like, what does that look like on the day-to-day -day yeah. basis? Oh, well, I'll tell you what, this is just one perspective. Mm-hmm. When the Savior appeared to the Nephites, you know, he descended. And one of the first things he did was have them come forward one by one. And we know that uh, in Third Nephi chapter 17 that there's 2,500 of them. So if you allowed enough time for 2,500 people to come forward one by one, we don't know how long he took with each one. But if you're in a wedding reception line where maybe 300 guests come in an evening, it takes two or three hours to mm -hmm. greet the bride and groom. That's mm -hmm. with 300 people. Mm -hmm. I think that line would be longer than the Savior took, but if he gave them time to feel the marks in his hands, his feet, his side, it would have been maybe 10 seconds each. That would be six per minute. That would be 360 per hour. How many hours to greet 2,500 people? Well, we don't know, but I, I suspect he spent more time on this doctrine, faith in Jesus Christ, than any other doctrine that he taught them for the rest of the time that he was with the Nephites, because he knew that faith in Jesus Christ as the foundation would be what would keep them strong for 200 years. And so you've heard Elder Bettner talk about one by one mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Even though the Savior taught multitudes and multitudes followed him, his ministry was pretty much one by one, whether it was the woman at the well or the blind Bartimaeus, or Simon, or Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree, or Simon the Pharisee, or his healings were one by one. So with a quorum leader, you're going to achieve some success in the classroom on Sunday, but the greater success is going to be what you do the other days of the week, where you can reach out one by one. It's one by one where you can show the love. Yeah, that's powerful. And it, sometimes it's tempting, you know, in the Savior's example to just say, hey, why don't we save some time and I'll just talk to all of you real quick, you know, but that it's a completely different dynamic when the Savior took it one by one. 
and interacted individually with them. Yeah. It's powerful. We've covered a lot. There's more here, but man, I'd l- there's just so much to consider. Any other principle or concept you want to make sure we cover before you wrap up or I don't want to leave any. Just going back to be and do for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. I've often felt like the greatest sermon that the Savior ever gave was not on a mount, was not in a temple or a synagogue, was not on the byways of Judea as he taught his parables to his disciples. But I think we could all agree that his greatest sermon by far was his sinless life, mm-hmm. what we could call the sermon of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. We stand in awe because none of us have had a perfect day, let alone a perfect life. Yeah. So we stand in awe. And then his invitation that came with that is what manner of men and women ought she to be? So that becomes the quest of our lifetime and striving to do it. So I, I love chapter six of Preach My Gospel, which is how do I develop Christ-like attributes? We've only put 10 attributes in that chapter. Faith, hope, charity, love, humility, diligence, patience, virtue, knowledge, and obedience. But there are, I'm sure, well over 300 virtues. I've created a list of over 300. I've grouped them in groupings of 100, which is hard to do. You, you might take polite, courteous, chivalrous, gentlemanly, put them all in one, diligent, steadfast, perseverant, all of those kind of in the same category, grouping. But chapter 6 doesn't have meekness, doesn't have forgiveness, doesn't have temperance. There's a lot of incredible Christ-like attributes that aren't in chapter 6. I just think the senior brethren put attributes in chapter 6 that were foremost essential for missionaries Hmm. in the mission field. But Ben Franklin had uh, 13 virtues, and he would track his progress with B, not so much do, but with B, his 13, he would focus on one virtue per week, and 13 virtues would allow him to go through four times 13, 52. He'd, it would allow him to go through all 13 virtues four times each year, one a week. And at the end of his life, he said this practice of monitoring and seeing how well he was doing, what his progress was with Christ-like virtues, he said in regards to his little book, to this little artifice, their ancestor, it may be well my posterity should be informed that to this little artifice, their ancestor owed the constant felicity of his life down to the 79th year in which it is written. That uh, striving to become like Jesus Christ will bring us joy, happiness, just like it did to Benjamin Franklin, like it did to Abraham. Mm-hmm. He sought for the blessings of his father because of the happiness and the more we become like Jesus Christ, the happier we will be in life. To me, that's the greatest leadership principle of all, is striving to be the kind of leader he was and is, in addition to doing the things that he did. Yeah. A lot of his attributes don't make sense to the natural man. So if you were to ask the world to consider the words leader and servant, and ask them, are those two words synonyms or antonyms? They're going to say they're antonyms. Right, yeah. But if you were to ask the greatest leader of all time if they're antonyms or synonyms, they're clearly synonyms. Yeah. And so when the Savior in the New Testament said that uh, the Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, that's the way it's translated in Spanish. It's ministering, I think, in English. 
but he taught by example, washing his disciples' feet. And we have examples in Mosiah 2, where when we are in the service of our fellow men, we're in the service of God, that many of the Savior's leadership principles, like not looking for experience and degrees Mm -hmm. and skills, but looking for humility, looking for diligence, looking for industry, looking for love. That's what he looks for in a leader. Then the quest of our lifetime should be to be as he is. Yeah. Amen. Well, Elder Robbins, this has been such a blessing in my life. I'm excited to to share these thoughts and concepts uh, with the listening audience. The last question I have for you, you've definitely hit on it, several components, but it's one I, I typically ask at the end of a, an interview about leadership is just reflecting on your time as a leader, the decades of leadership that, that you've had. How has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? This is almost a chicken and egg question. <laughs> right, right. Because the more we become as he is, clearly, the mm-hmm. better leaders we will become. I remember a challenge that we had in Latin America. The word cacique is an Indian chief. And very often you'd find someone who was new in the gospel that was a young bishop or they didn't want to delegate. Mm. And if they went on vacation, they hoped things would fall apart because they wanted people to know that they were indispensable. Mm. Where the, to me, the sign or evidence of a great leader is they could leave on vacation, et cetera, and not be missed because they had delegated so well that the organization functioned well in their absence. And the more we become like Jesus Christ, the greater leaders we will become. And of course, you can tell from this interview that my favorite experiences and things to teach as a leader is to point to Jesus Christ as the greatest leader of all time and to encourage others to strive to become as he is. And that in turn makes them better fathers and mothers, which is the greatest leadership position of all. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts, and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org contact. And remember, go to leadingsaints.org 14 to gain access to Rob Farrell's four-hour presentation at no cost. Visit leadingsaints.org 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away. 
and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.